Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby. I'm the host, Zibby Owens. I am an author. My latest is blank, pub date March 1st, a novel. I'm also a podcaster, obviously, a publisher, a bookstore owner, and so much more. If you love books, you're in the right place. In fact, we call it the Zivyverse, or really, the LA Times called it the Zivyverse, and we're going with it. Go to zivyowens.com to learn more, and follow me on Instagram at zivyowens. Jenny Hollander is the author of Everyone Who Can Forgive Me Is Dead, a novel. Jenny is the director of content strategy at Marie Claire, where she oversees the brand's daily coverage, as well as the hashtag ReadWithMCBookClub. Before moving to Marie Claire, she worked at Bustle. A graduate of the Columbia University School of Journalism, Jenny spent 10 years in New York before moving back to her hometown of London. Everyone Who Can Forgive Me Is Dead is her first novel. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Everyone Who Can Forgive Me Is Dead. Thank you so much for having me, Zibby. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. Okay, Jenny, tell everybody what your book is about, please. So this is a fast-placed and twisty thriller about a woman who thought she outrun her past. Uh, She witnessed a horrific massacre at her journalism school nine years earlier. And then when she finds out that a classmate is trying to make a movie about that night, the truth about what really happened will really jeopardize everything that the main character thought she knew about her life and about herself. Wow. And where did this come from? I like to joke that it's almost as though my life took a very different turn. It's about a Brit that moves to New York. I am a Brit who moved to New York when I was 22, the same age as my protagonist, Charlie, did. And I went to journalism school. And then from there, I established a career in New York as a journalist. And 
for me, I was very lucky. Nothing went horribly wrong. And for Charlie, I just started thinking about what might have happened if my life had taken a very different turn when I was very isolated from my friends and from my family and in a new place, in a very new media environment. And that's a big part of the book, you know, how the media really focuses on Charlie and how, you know, the media really tends to treat survivors of tragedies like pieces of meat in some ways and really takes advantage of them in in a very vulnerable state. And I started just thinking about, I don't know, all these all these dark things. And then I sort of twisted that into a almost alternate history of my last 10 years and what I would have been like if my life had gone, as I said, in a very different direction. Because this book is a thriller at its heart, but it's also about trauma. It's about finding yourself. It's about, in some ways, coming to terms and treating, treating things that have happened to you that you never really recovered from. And there's a lot of me in it, but I also, my father-in-law refers to it as Zark Jenny, which I think is really funny. <laughs> but I also can assure you that nothing like that has ever, ever happened to me. But it is definitely, I'm writing a second book now. The first one was, is definitely more personal than the second one is. Interesting. Well, maybe you wouldn't tell me though, or tell anybody if you had yeah. secrets, right? Because they I wouldn't would, be secrets anymore. <laughs> it would just be the ultimate, you know. Yes. Um, if I wrote a book called Everyone Who Can Forgive Me Is Dead and then said, oh yeah, nothing like that ever happened to me. Right. And then it turns out it was true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. That could be the, that could be the next book is uh, <laughs> when the author of this book, her <laughs> secrets come out, we could just keep going in circles on this whole thing. <laughs> you wrote in a really interesting way about New York, you know, from another perspective and you called it a survivor's city. Uh, tell yeah. me about some of these differences in the heart of New York and how do you really feel about it? Oh my God, I love New York. And Charlie's journey with New York is very much like my journey with New York. And I got there and everyone around me was constantly saying, oh my God, this place is amazing. Where all the dreams come true. This is so beautiful and incredible. And I just looked around and I was like, really? (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, New York in so many ways, the quality of life in so many ways is low, right? You know, you've got these tiny, tiny apartments. You've got cockroaches everywhere. Uh, I I was there for 10 years. I'm not just talking out of my ass here and you know you have rats everywhere and everything's very expensive and it's a really tough competitive city that is really really cold in the winter and really hot in the summer and has about six weeks of the year where the temperature is actually really nice and I think I think I just looked around at first and I just thought what is the big deal I just don't get it like even the tall buildings on the inside often you know when you get the doctors or the dentist kind of look very run down on the inside and a little bit scary. And then I kind of went on this journey over the first five years or so I was in New York where I just felt so in love with it. And it was because I was having a lot of anxiety at the time and just nonstop panic attacks. And I was very isolated from my friends and my family at the time. And I just realized that when you are in need, New York is the place that steps up. You know, like if you forget your credit card at the bodega, they will hand you the groceries and they'll say, you come back later. You know, you can come pay later. Like if you have a panic attack on the subway and I have many panic attacks on the subway, New Yorkers are always there to like help you outside, make sure you're okay, get you to the hospital if you need, like to even just hold your hand. If ever you need help, New York is the very first to stop because I think in so many ways, like they're so used to things being so hectic that it doesn't phase them. Like nothing that you do will ever phase them. And I live in London now. And as much as I love London, there isn't that sense. And I think that's, for me, what made New York, for me, the best place in the world. That when you needed help, New Yorkers were always there in every way that you needed them. Wow. That's great. That's not like the brand. (laughs) (laughs) 
I know, right? I mean, I, I'm not sure everybody would agree. Like, that's great. I've lived here my whole life. Well, not, you know, I've gone out mm. for years at a time. And, but would I describe it as a place where if you need help, somebody would stop? I don't know. But that's great. I love it. We need some good PR. So <laughs> I think I might be comparing it to London. Like, London's a place where, like, you don't necessarily talk to cashiers. Like, you don't necessarily have conversations. You don't yell things out in the street. Like, I walk down the street in London and 10 people don't stop and talk to my dog in the way that they do in New York. Okay. Yes. And I think feeling really connected to your city in that way is how was so meaningful for me and that you could not go down the street without interacting with someone in some way. And London's very different in that way. And it's something that, you know, I'm pretty new to London now and I miss New York a lot in that way. How vibrant every block becomes when you're you know, it's like, it's like a sea tide. I read this in the book, like it'll knock you over and then it'll just push you back up yep. and you're just like, okay. <laughs> yes. Wow. I, I literally yesterday, I was picking up my kids from somewhere and this dog came over who I swear must've been like a, my grandmother in another life. I swear. I like this dog <laughs> was like, w- we connected in such a way and I'm not like a stuff on the street. Let's pet the dog type of person, even though I love my own dog <laughs> in here somewhere, but I don't know. And like, I'm like, what is going on? You, I'm on the street for five minutes and I have like a new pet. You know, now I'm like missing the dog. Where is, what was it called? Like buttercup or something? I don't even know. Brandy, whiskey, something. Anyway, but yes, there is that element. Incredible dogs. It really, really does. And London, and this bothers me, all the dogs are very, almost like toy poodly. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, and that's a stereotype for London and obviously it's not true everywhere, but certainly where I live in London, all the dogs are like little toy poodles. And my dog is this like very anxious, like very over the top, very dramatic rescue. And all of them are like, We've never seen anything like this before. Who are you? Where do you come from? And I'm like, he's a New Yorker. Like he spent the first five years of his life in New York. Like this is who he is. He's going to bark at you, and then he's going to try and sniff you, and then he's going to run away. Oh my gosh! Well, to shift gears, as they say in workplaces mm. I don't belong to. <laughs> I read your article in Marie Claire about developmental coordination disorder and oh, what, what that. that's like. What that's like for you—the sort of comorbidity with ADHD. Um, yeah. yeah. And you know, how that presents and what that has been like for you. So could you share a little mm. bit more about that? Because it's obviously with the statistics you put in, it's it's quite common more so than autism. And yet not yeah. that many people maybe know about it. Yeah. So I think it presents as a clumsiness as its main symptom, but it presents in so many different ways that it's really hard to diagnose. You've got to rule out a lot of other different things first. You have to rule, rule out, you know, brain injuries. You have to rule out ADHD, autism, really everything in that kind of like developmental zone and it's almost a disorder of of exclusion Mm -hmm. and then you get to this thing and you're like okay this person has all these different symptoms and they're different from the next child with dyspraxia and that's what they call it in the UK and the US is called DCD as you said but this is what it is because it cannot be anything else and for that reason it's very very hard to study it's very hard to diagnose and the US for whatever reason never quite got on board with it maybe it's the medical system because it's for profit whereas i mean the nhs here isn't quite perfect either but maybe that contributed there are also there are two moms actually in the UK who both of their kids had what's called dyspraxia here in the i want to say the late 80s and they were so frustrated because they just could not find any care for their kids. Like there were like people knew what it was, but there was no support. There were no 
groups, there were no activities, there was just no support for them or for their children. And they actually started a foundation that has become this behemoth, it's called the Dyspraxia Foundation. And it now brings in, you know, hundreds of thousands of profits every year. Well, not profits, it's a non-for-profit, but it, <laughs> for the course. And because of it, dyspraxia is actually very well known in the UK. And I always come back to the fact that it was just these two women who were so mad because their kids had this and no one was helping them. And it really became this country changing movement in a way. And the US just never had it. I often think of those two mums who started this foundation, which is, as I said, a huge behemoth now. And I just think like, if you guys hadn't done that, would anybody Mm. in the US? I don't think they did. Or if they did, it didn't catch on in the same way for various reasons. Leave it to busy moms to just change up. Yeah, right. (laughs) Leave it to them to be like, oh, we're fixing this. (laughs) (laughs) So in the article, you talked about how day-to-day things like standing up after you've been sitting down or the coordination it takes to chew or eat are things you have to actively think about throughout the course of your day. How do you marry that with having a career based in in words and, you know, interacting mm. with people in journalism and, you know, mm. the, 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 you know, the pace of life. And also where do the panic attacks fit into all of this as well? So I, I don't, sorry, I'm like totally delving into your first. No, 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 it, it, it's all completely related. The panic attacks really came about in part because people with dyspraxia are much more likely to have sensory difficulties. And so I and other people with dyspraxia often get very overwhelmed by things. And I just have to figure out workarounds, figure out ways to treat it in myself a lot of it is just saying I'm having a panic attack and I'm going to take 10 minutes and then I'll come back and being good with that, frankly. But for me and for a lot of people with dyspraxia, it really comes down to spiky skills. So you're very, very good at some things and you're very, very bad at others. And I've been lucky enough that in my career, the things that I am good at have compensated for the things that I am bad at. Mm-hmm. So because I do edit a lot and I can get through a lot of words and I can do a lot of different communications and a lot of different kinds of problem solving that do mm-hmm. come really naturally to me. And I find not easy, but not in any way difficult mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. I have been able to be allowed to focus on those things and not focus on the things that I am bad at, which are generally around organization, budgeting, particularly with journalism, you know, things like interviewing. I'm actually, I'm not very good at interviews, honestly. I'm trying to get better from practicing. But You're great I'm on this one. At... You mean interviewing other people or giving an interview? No, giving an interview. I'm, I'm, I'm all right at interviewing other people, but actually speaking about things. Like what? You're doing great. This is fabulous. I mean, it doesn't feel like an interview. This isn't like a traditional interview because I'm just like, you know, diving into you. But but I also want to impress you. I think you're amazing. And I can feel myself tripping over myself and thinking, come on, come on, you can do better. Oh, stop. I think you're amazing. This is, you know, look at your book and your career and like, it's just really awesome. But, you know, something like we have amazing fashion team, for example, we are a fashion magazine. And because I can almost sit on my computer and write and edit and really kind of play point person in that way, Mm -hmm. our other editors can go and be at the shows and Mm -hmm. do all of these things I think for me would very be very difficult from a sensory perspective Mm -hmm. and I think you need someone like me who is just like no I don't want to go to fashion shows that sounds (laughs) great for you we should definitely do it but I'm going to sit there I'm going to like organize it from behind the scenes and I think I've been very lucky in that all my jobs because of the things that as I say I I I like to think I am good at I've been given the leeway and the understanding to not be thrown into situations that are hard for me. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. 
so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rustolium. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's great. Yesterday in my office, I have like impaired spatial relations. Like I cannot <laughs> fit things together. I am really bad at that. Like I once got tested and person was like, so you must get into like a lot of car accidents. And I was like, <laughs> I do get into a lot of car accidents. You know, like, so yesterday in, in my office, I, there were like two existing computer plugs and they were different shaped like little box things that the plug goes into. And I was trying to fit a third one in and move them around. I was like, I literally can't figure this out. I can't, I can't figure out how to put three chargers here, but I can like run this business and do everything else. But like yes. this step, forget it. I need help. So I, oh, I guess yeah. watching your- <laughs> it is, it is, it's, And it's so embarrassing too, because when you feel yourself to be someone who like really does take on leadership roles in your life and obviously with your family, it's embarrassing to have to say, I, don't, I can't do this incredibly basic thing. I mean, I, I can't drive at all. Okay. I would cause accidents. You know, I've been told I probably could if I had a disability-specific car and an instructor, but I've never quite looked into that because I'm in London now. And why would I? She was great. But certainly it's, it's, it's it feels very stupid to be able to do a lot of different things than to say, no, I can't drive there. Someone's going to have to drive me there. <laughs> it's very infantilizing in a way. And it's yeah. it's something I've really had to come to terms with and being like, no, can't do that. Sorry, someone else is going to have to, you know, fix this very basic thing that I just can't do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I totally get it. <laughs> um, what does it mean now to be your digital director of Marie Claire? Right. What does yes. that What does that mean? And how How do you keep magazines relevant when, like, the whole world is like the death knell is is ringing for magazines? Which, by the way, I love magazines. But you know, like, how do you reinvent? And that you know, obviously, you're in charge of the digital, which is the most important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Piece. So tell me about that and how you you know. I think obviously in the last twenty years, we've seen huge shifts in digital media in general. Like we've seen, I mean, we've seen digital media create huge shifts in media, mm-hmm. and we've seen just an enormous amount of change. It, it's really made the entire media industry a completely new industry. And I think in the last few years, I've definitely had workplaces that were like, all right, we're going to chase the traffic or we're going to chase the like chase the commerce or we're going to mm-hmm. chase this or that. And it never quite works when you chase one thing. When you kind of throw everything else out the window and try and chase one thing, it never is sustainable in the long term. And one thing that I try really hard to do at Marie Claire and that I work with a team that does feel the same is we try and do not just everything well, 
which is also true, but we try and focus on the reader and we try and like focus less so on everything else, all these little parts that you really can obsess over and more focus on like, okay, how, how are we reaching this reader? Is it through search? If so, what are we doing to make that the best experience possible? Mm-hmm. Is it through newsletter? If so, what are we doing to make it to make sure we know who that reader is, that we're reaching them, mm-hmm. and that when they see our newsletter, they're opening it and they care about what we have to say. Mm-hmm. If it's Facebook, what platforms are they on? How are we reaching them? Like, what strategies are we using to make sure that we get to them? And I do think that when you when you bring it back to that, it's not a recipe for success because media is turbulent by nature, but it is much more sustainable as a strategy than anything that's like, you know what, we're going to pivot to video and we're going to make loads of money from video and everything's going to be fine. I think those kind of singular strategies, which we did for a lot of very panicked years in the 2010s in media, don't tend to work. (laughs) That's great advice. Or like currently thinking about like our own, well, anyway, it's just very good advice because we're also like trying to reach the readers. Like that's what everything is about, right? Like this podcast and everything is just like, yeah, you know, celebrating reading and like, how do you reach people who are already celebrating reading? Yeah, it's, I mean, I certainly with newsletter, that's been my kind of big learning from the last year and a half. And it does feel very like mid 2000s. And you're like, oh, a newsletter. Like, yeah, I too had those in the mid 2000s. We found that like with social and search platforms constantly changing, it is the one way we can reach our reader directly Mm-hmm. our loyal readers where they are and we have really invested in that in the last year and we've seen a lot of sustained success from it too mm-hmm. so that's that that's like this year I'm thinking a lot about newsletter last year I was thinking about something different but this mm-hmm. year I'm thinking that that is a fantastic way to reach who the person that you want to reach yeah. rather than like a big broad audience yep you know it's all kind of about that one person anyway right yeah totally Good advice. Okay. Turns out I'm getting career advice from you when I'm supposed to be interviewing you about your novel, which... <laughs> okay, back to well, the novel. As, as discussed, I'm not very good at interviews, so I really do go on tangents sometimes. I love I, it. I <laughs> no, I love it. This is how you get to know people, right? This is like, you know, what's on our minds and all of that. Wait, you referenced earlier that you were working on another book that wasn't quite as pressing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so tell me about that book. Ugh, I'm loving working on it. It's Everyone Who Could Me Is Dead it was my first book. And I, it was a huge learning curve because I'd never written fiction. I began during the pandemic. As it turns out, writing fiction is not something you can just like do, write a draft of, send it in and be like, great, let's do it. Like I went through eight different drafts and each draft was a full rewrite. And I just got very lucky that I had people on my team who really believed in the book and were willing to get me to this finish line. But the second book is coming a lot easier because after these eight drafts, I have a slightly better sense of what I'm doing (laughs) and how to pace and how to you know, just how to go about it. And it's also not really about me or my life. And I'm really enjoying that too. But sorry, you asked what it was about. It's about two sisters. One of them is really, really famous. She's a singer and she and her sister are estranged. They have very different lives. One is a very low key life in London. One is a megastar in New York City. And then the man that led them being estranged, not perhaps in the way that you'd expect, shows up dead. And very quickly, a lot of the evidence points to both sisters. And they have to really figure out how far they're going to go to protect themselves and also protect each other after years and years of being apart. So where is where is the fascination with the dead people coming from? Oh, gosh, it's funny, actually, because my mother always says that when she took me to the library and I was a kid, all I wanted to do was find books about people who were dying or dead or about to die but didn't know it. The sick, the dead, and the dying. 
she called it. And she was quite freaked out by it. <laughs> I don't think she like, she was like, where is this going? This child is like, this <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think I've always been uniquely interested in trauma and the ways that we process it and move on from it. Not particularly from a personal level. I think I just find it interesting for better and for worse probably. And when you said that everyone who can forgive me is dead is much more personal, what elements of it? Not are the title, but <laughs> well, but when, that's up for debate. Still, I'm not convinced. <laughs> not convinced at yeah. all, especially you the more I hear. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but what what pieces of this are are sort of direct lifts? Charlie is very much, particularly when Charlie first moved to New York City, mm-hmm. and Charlie's very naive, and Charlie really is kind of just vibing her way through the day. Mm-hmm. That is very much where I was at 22 when I moved to New York and didn't have a clue what I was doing. And then obviously later in the book, Charlie has a lot of anxiety and panic related to her trauma. Mm-hmm. And that was different for me. But I went through a phase in my mid-20s where I was really having just terrible, terrible anxiety. And it was taking over my whole life. And there are a lot of panic attacks in the book and a lot of just like rising panic about, in Charlie's case, something very valid. Mm-hmm. And I think in my case, it was just, you know, the anxiety in my head convincing me it was valid. Mm-hmm. But it all feels the same, right? <laughs> so all of that was very much based on my personal experiences. And how do you feel you're managing your anxiety now? Better than I was in my mid-20s. But I mean, I always just kind of think therapy and medication if needed are not cure-all, but I believe in therapy so much. And I truly, truly believe that therapy saved me over and over again throughout my life. Amazing. What advice do you have for aspiring authors? I would always say, don't do what I did. I just, I literally just like wrote up a novel and I was like, you know what? Write like all these communities online seem really scary. Like the chances of getting published seem really scary. I'm just going to start sending it off. And that's not what you should do. You should have patient <laughs> readers. You should have a plan. You should have an idea of your genre. You should have competitors, uh, sorry, like competitive titles. That you, you should have a very strong sense of how it's going to sit on shelves. You should try and sell it better to the people who are going to try and sell it. I generally think that as much as when you start fiction, there's this terrifying knowledge that the chances of getting published are very, very small. And it really can put you off. But at the same time, doing a manageable amount of research... <laughs> into the industry is a good idea and I've always been someone who throws herself in feet first I I wouldn't have done that but I also would have tried to make sure I didn't psych myself out too much because you can do that too publishers marketplace as a tool was Mm -hmm. really really helpful just because I wanted to find a agent and that was obviously the starting place and I found an amazing agent Claire Friedman at Inkwell who is just an incredible partner in everything that we do. And who also bared with me through eight different drafts and said, we're going to get there. We're going to get there, even though, you know, we're not quite there yet. <laughs> but to do that, Publishers Marketplace was my best friend because I really had to figure out who that person was. And once you have that person in your corner, once you have that teammate and you trust them and you're willing to, <clears throat> sorry, I'm, I'm not crying over this. I, I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to stop crying. You're not going to cry over Publishers Marketplace. (laughs) I I, I think that's amazing, but I'm not, I'm not sobbing over a video call about it. (laughs) Um, Once you have that, things get easier because you have a partner and everything. And until then, Publishers Marketplace and beta readers, I think are your best friend. I love that. Jenny, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It was such a pleasure. I'm such a big fan. And thank you so much for reading. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.